Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Our Hooli Records founder, Chris Strockwitz, died earlier this year. He'd spent 60 years in the bars and cantinas of the United States and Mexico recording roots music, the blues, Zydeco, Norteño, and a bunch of other less classifiable acts. While he's known for the sounds that he captured, he also brought along a camera. The photos he took have been collected into a book co-authored with veteran music journalist Joel Selvin. We'll listen into selections from the Arhuli catalog and talk about the life and legacy of Chris Strockwitz. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning by Joel Selvin, San Francisco-based music journalist and co-author of Our Hooli Records Down Home Music, The Stories and Photographs of Chris Strockwitz. Welcome, Joel. Great to be here. I want to tell people, we've got some of the photos up from this book on our Instagram. They are amazing. And before we start talking, I want to give people a sense of what Our Hooli Records was about. So, it's 1960. We're in Los Gatos, little shack off Highway 17. It's the house of a young German guy, Chris Strockwitz. He's a musical fanatic magnetized by down-home American sounds, whether that's hillbilly music, the blues, later Zydeco, and the corridos of the border region. But for now, he's just starting to record musicians. Here in the shack with us, there's a bluesman, Big Joe Williams. He's fresh out of jail, having been picked up in Oakland and then shipped to Santa Rita, Got out, and he's here to play for Strockwitz thanks to a tip from Bob Geddens, longtime record man along 7th Street in West Oakland. Big Joe's brought his wife, Mary, and his son, and they're all in this little tiny place lined with books. Bottle of spirits on the table, Big Joe's amp on the floor, guitar in his hands. Strockwitz has a single mic running into an Ampex tape recorder, and at some point, he hit record. Big Joe Williams would play the guitar. Mary would sing this blues spiritual, I Want My Crown. Let's just listen. Get my crown. 
Joe Williams on the guitar with his wife Mary singing. And from the early 1960s onward when that was recorded, Strockwitz would become, as Joel Selvin writes in the book, our Hooli Records down-home music, the stories and photographs of Chris Strockwitz, the single most important and formidable folklorist of his generation. Looking back on his career, Strockwitz would say this one session captured in such cobbled-together circumstances was, quote, probably the single most powerful pure blues recording I was ever able to capture. What do you think, Joel, made him say that about that recording? Aside from the fact that it's just electric and so powerful, feels like you're right there, you know? (laughs) Um, Big Joe Williams was a force of nature. He came out of the Chicago blues scene. He was really important um, mentor to Mike Bloomfield, to Charlie Musselwhite. Uh, At this point in his career, he was largely forgotten. He, like you said, fresh out of jail, Chris had to bail him out, and he took him down to this cabin in the woods where Chris lived, and in the small room with his earliest equipment, he caught this whole thing in the course of an evening. Uh, It was the moment, it was the place, it was the person mm-hmm. it was that nine string guitar isn't it fierce <laughs> oh man yeah yeah you also you know the verb you used there was caught this thing right not recorded this thing but caught this thing well chris was um <clears throat> he, he didn't think of himself as a record producer although he most assuredly was he made 400 albums <laughs> Uh, but he saw himself as a song catcher which is a word that that goes back to before recordings uh when um the English musicologists collected Elizabethan ballads in in the Appalachian uh, <laughs> yeah, Valley. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, that's what Chris said. But to me, I mean, he just he he didn't start on the downbeat. He didn't do second takes. He it, you know he just opened up the mic, pressed record, and let whatever was happening in the room go down on the tape. Huh. As a music journalist, I mean, how do you think of him as a as a record producer? I mean, you you know there are other producers that are you know twenty mics and all this stuff, and mm-hmm. there's all these you know you know. Oh, they're um, probably doing more production on us right here and now <laughs> yeah, than right. Chris did. You know, they've got some compression and and yeah, stuff like that yeah. going on. But Chris didn't use compression, didn't use reverb, didn't you know? He got into mixing later on, and he did do multi track recordings, mm-hmm. but it wasn't pertinent. Yeah. And in fact, uh, late in his career, uh, 
he went to West Virginia where they'd recreated an old recording studio and did single mic recordings again. But I, I came to, uh, around on the Chris's record producer thing, uh, reacquainting myself with his uh, uh, repertoire doing this book, because I always was sort of dismissive of it. Uh, you know, I'm a pop music guy, and, and you know, I, I love my compression, but uh, starting to listen to these things like uh, the, the Fred McDowell record that he cut in Fred's living room in 1964. Another bluesman, yeah. I just, there's nothing between you and the performance. Mm. You feel the room, you feel the fingers on the strings, you feel the intake of breath between lines. And what Chris comes out of that with, instead of a record, instead of a production, is he comes out with just this, it's authenticity, yeah. You, you you can feel like you're in the room, and 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 not to pivot here, but the photographs that he took mm. that the book are made of, you can hear the music. <laughs> you can see. I mean, these the the photograph that's on the the cover has this uh, kind of dance party going in uh, you know somebody's yard, big tree. That's Fred McDowell. Fred McDowell. Yeah, Como, absolutely. Mississippi. Yeah. I yeah. don't know what that's near. Yeah, <laughs> probably nothing. Uh, <laughs> let's um, let's hear Chris Strockwitz's voice a little bit here. Let's see if we uh, have him talking about trying to record uh, Lightning Hopkins. Well, the radio actually was because uh, that was the amazing democratic medium that was available to you if you were in a city that was uh, near Los Angeles and. I heard this amazing array of, of uh, Americana music. Yeah, I heard hillbilly music over XERB in Rosarito Beach in Baja, California. I heard uh, uh, Mexican music in the afternoon on a station in Santa Paula. And I heard Harlem Matinee uh, with Hunter Hancock, a DJ who was beginning to play uh, African-American popular music, you know, and... Uh, the blues were just hitting. This was in the very early 50s, like 51, 52. And uh, it was amazing. Of My European ears just went bananas. That was uh, Chris Strockwitz actually talking about what ended up piquing his interest in roots and regional, regional music styles. It was the radio, the democratic medium of the radio, and all the things that were going out across the, the airways. Well, Chris was a lonely, unhappy uh, 14-year-old living in Reno, Nevada, having been displaced from a very lovely farm in what would become East Germany. He had an idyllic youth, uh, you know, pet rabbits, and his father was the town aristocrat. Uh, so the Nazis interrupted that, and the war destroyed the homeland. The Nazis took over the farm, and then the Russians took over the farm, and as soon as they could, the family skedaddled. So he found himself at 14, just miserable, up in Reno, living with an aunt. And he connected with these blues records because he realized that those guys writing and singing those songs felt the same way as he did. Hmm. Just in the sense of they a lot of great migration movement. A lot they of didn't these... belong here. They weren't part yeah. of the society. They were outside yeah. looking in, and they weren't happy about it. And Chris mm. identified with that. Mm. He he picked that up right out of Lightning Hopkins. Yeah, we have uh, a Lightning Hopkins song. Why don't we uh, hear this? I think we're going to hear California Showers. Just take a look out at the weather. It keep raining all the time 
Just take a look out at the weather It keep raining all the time You know it be raining this minute and the next minute You look up and you see sunshine Tell me why the rain When it started in California all the time Tell me why the rain When it started in California all the time that was Lightning Hopkins, recorded by Chris Strockwitz. The song is California Showers. We're talking with Joel Selvin, San Francisco-based music journalist and co-author of this book with Chris Strockwitz, Arhuli Records Down Home Music. We have a bunch of beautiful photographs from the book that are on our Instagram that you can take a look at. And of course, we'd love to hear from you too. Arhuli Records has been an institution in our community for many years. What are some of the artists or albums that you've discovered through our Hooli? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Going out to some Fred McDowell. Shake him down. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Well, I played the jack in the spring. Jack never went a thing. Jack a diamond was a hard card to play. And I played him in the fall. And the jack never went at all. Jack a diamond was a hard card to play. And I fell down on my knees trying to play Jack of Spades. Jack of Diamond was a hard card to play. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. That is Mance Lipscomb playing Jack of Diamonds. We're talking with Joel Selvin, San Francisco based music journalist and author. He co authored a book 
with Chris Strachwitz called Our Hooli Records Down Home Music, the stories and photographs of Chris Strachwitz, who died earlier this year. Talk to me a little bit about Mance Lipscomb in the context of, you know, Chris Strachwitz getting into doing this kind of recording and, and record production. Yeah, well, this is the R. Hooli origin story. That's the first R. Hooli record. Uh, <clears throat> Chris had been contacted by a fellow blues enthusiast uh, out of Houston who had found Lightning Hopkins. They knew his records, but they didn't know where he was. So Chris went down the day after school let out. He was teaching public school in Los Gatos and, and saw Lightning Hopkins in a club in Houston. Uh, and that was the beginning. Uh-huh. The next year, school let out. He took a tape recorder <laughs> and went down to Texas. And the first guy he uh, talked to wanted to have $500, which Chris hadn't figured on. So he and his buddy, they went out to um, Navasota, Texas, where uh, there was a farm owner who had been mentioned in a Lightning Hopkins song, Tom Moore's Farm. And they met with Tom Moore because they thought he might know where blues singers are. He didn't really, but he told him to go down to the railway station and talk to Peg Leg. Like a guy named Peg Leg. Yeah, and you can imagine that Peg Leg is missing one of his legs and he hangs out at the radio, uh, railway station. And indeed, he did know where there was a blues singer and gave him directions out of town to where there was a shack and this guy lived. And he wasn't home and they were waiting on his porch when Mance Lipscomb came back. And they said that they wanted to hear the blues. And he didn't even have a guitar, but Chris knew that that was a problem, and he brought a guitar. And so Mance took Chris's guitar and looked at these two white guys and played St. Louis blues. Now, that wasn't exactly what they wanted to hear. And Chris said, no, man, you know, we want to hear what you play out on the Brazos. And Mance looked at these guys, I mean, like, really? And started playing his repertoire. Mance had never left his hometown of Navasota, Texas. He was 67 years old. He was two years having retired after spending his life as a sharecropper. Chris recorded him that night at the house, and that became the first Arhuli record. Chris sat in his, his kitchen pasting the covers on, and 1961... There was a very active folk scene, and this record was something of a phenomenon on the folk scene. I don't mean pop charts and big sales or anything, Mm -hmm. but Mance Lipscomb was like a mammoth that had been hauled out of an icy crevice. He was this authentic Texas songster with a memory of hundreds of songs, and immediately that record was a phenomenon. And uh, Chris brought Mance out from Texas— to uh, play the UC Berkeley Folk Festival at the Greek Theater, his first public performance in his life, right? Because all the time before, it was just at parties and friends' houses and stuff like that in front of 11,000 people. Wow. So what was the financial arrangement between Strachwitz and Arhuli and these various blues singers in this period of time? Well, Chris paid his royalties, and uh, was very generous with the musicians. They really liked Chris. I, I was around a lot of that. Uh, I was around him and Mance, uh, him and Lightning, him and Clifton Chenier. And, and th- those guys loved Chris. He, so wait, when did you meet him? I met Chris when I was 19 years old. Oh, wow. And just beginning in the journalism racket. And, and he kind of took me under his wing. 
uh, I, I, I wrote about his acts. And in fact, when I started at the Chronicle, uh, uh, I think like the third article I wrote was an interview with Chris Strzokowicz. <laughs> and then years and years and years later, like in the 21st century, I wrote a magazine article when the Chronicle had a magazine uh-huh. and that won an award. And, yeah. and in between, you know, I don't know how many dozens of articles about Chris's acts and stuff like that. So we were very close friends. I, I, I made it my business to spend as much time with Chris as I could because Every taco uh, dinner, every nightclub visit, it was another postgraduate seminar. Wow. We're talking with Joel Selvin, San Francisco-based music journalist and author. Latest book is Arhuli Records Down Home Music, the stories and photographs of Chris Strachwitz, uh, also co-authored with Chris Strachwitz, who has a, a bunch of writing about the photos in here. Let's bring in uh, Mario from San Carlos. Welcome. Hello. Hey, Mario. Yes. Um, I was just going to point out that um, Down Home Records in El Cerrito is, has a lease that's going to run out in two years. Um, the we were just there last night and bought a bunch, got a couple of records, and um, talked with the guys behind the the counter. And basically, what's going to happen is the entire stock is going to be sold off, and Down Home Music will just go away. Oh, man. And people need to support Down Home. It's a Bay Area treasure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of Chris Strachwitz's legacy, mm-hmm. and um, I, I understand that they donated the entire Arhuli catalog to the Smithsonian. It would be kind of nice if the Smithsonian got involved with the store, if that's mm. possible. Yeah, hey, thanks. And, yeah. Mario, um, thanks for, uh, for tipping us off there. I mean, I think the Smithsonian took the—it's now part of Smithsonian Folkways, right? Yeah, they bought the—well, uh, 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 actually— uh, one of our uh, local um, philanthropists bought it, uh, Ed Littlefield of Marley's Ghost, and, and he donated the Smithsonian. Got it, got it. And the deal calls for the Smithsonian to keep every title in print. Yeah. Chris would not let it go unless they agreed to that. So the Smithsonian has both volume one and volume two of the Austrian folk music collections. <laughs> Let's um, let's uh, play one more uh, blues song, and then I want to get to some of the other music that uh, he recorded. Let's hear uh, Big Mama Thornton singing "My Heavy Load." Packing out my trouble, moving on down. Mama Thornton singing My Heavy Load. What a voice. The YouTube videos of her, when you can watch her perform live, are just... Oh, Big Mama was something. That's Big Mama backed by Fred McDowell. (laughs) That's a London recording session. They were on the American Folk Blues Tour in 1965. And most of the session is Buddy Guy and and people from Muddy Waters Band. But Chris 
being Chris, had Fred McDowell there, and he wanted to put Big Mama in with the country blues, and that that's a pretty special piece. Wow, that's really great. Um, I uh, as as our Huli evolved, wasn't that Chris didn't like the blues anymore, right? But it kind of you know you get the sense from the from your essay in the book that he was ready to move into other territories as well, and he was starting to run into other kinds of music, say in Louisiana. Well, right from the start, he was doing hillbilly music and old-timey uh, bluegrass. Uh, he tumbled real early to the Cajun music scene and all that acoustic music out of there. And then Lightning Hopkins took him to hear Zydeco in Houston, and he, and he met Clifton Chenier. He took Clifton Chenier into the studio the same day the <laughs> Beatles first appeared on Ed Sullivan. Okay, so he's I don't know that we would have ever heard of Zydeco if Chris Strockwitz hadn't recorded it. But then, as you say, the blues sort of petered out. He he had uh, mostly interested in pre-war country blues and those guys were getting elderly and they'd lost their sort of place in the in the Mm -hmm. in the cultural hierarchy. Um, Although he captured them in their late 50s and early 60s where they were still in the prime of their lives. Mm. But they were becoming uh, more obsolete, and and he covered that. So yeah, he started to mm-hmm. fan out, and that's when he ran across the Mexican stuff. Yeah. Well, before we go there, which I do want to talk about that, let's first hear uh, Clifton Chenier, the Louisiana oh, Blues. This is a song. <laughs> let's let's hear that. That was uh, Clifton Chenier, you know, a Cajun musician playing this incredible music that, you know, I have to say, I encountered Zydeco almost in kind of the, almost like satire form. Like, I never, I didn't hear this. I encountered it, you know, in the 90s as kind of... Beer, beer commercials. Yeah, kind of, yeah. you know, like a kind of jokey version of it, not like this version of it. Right? So Clifton used to come to town and he'd do a date at the rock clubs and then he would go out to Richmond where there was a gymnasium attached to a Catholic church called St. Mark's and there they would do hold what they called a French dance. And the French dance was attended by down-home folk from Louisiana and, and Clifton would play a three-hour set There'd be a pot of gumbo in the back. Uh, it was all dance all night. And then he'd take a break, and he'd come back with a crown on his head and play for another hour. And I got to tell you, uh, Alexis, uh, all the music I've seen all the years, those St. Mark shows, definitely in the top ten all time, wow. maybe top five. Wow. And, and there's a, Chris did a live album. Uh, and then expanded it when he put it out the CD, and and that and that CD live at St. Mark's, I, I I venture is one of the great live albums by anybody anywhere. 
That's awesome. Clifton Shaniro. Oh, my God. <laughs> We're talking with Joel Selvin, music journalist based here in the city. New book is Our Hooli Records Down Home Music, the stories and photographs of Chris Strockwitz, who, of course, founded and ran Our Hooli Records for a very long time. We've got a caller, John, in Santa Clara, who knew Chris when he was just a kid. Welcome, John. Yeah. I was uh, going to Los Gatos High School from 59 to 63. Oh, my God. And, and uh, Chris Strockwitz was my German teacher. <laughs> and, uh, I, oh, I remembered one day how excited he was when he brought in a small stack of records, of our Hooli records that he had produced, and uh, he was going to donate them to the library. End of class. Um, he had also brought in a turntable and played us some of the music. Uh, I mean, it was really obvious to me that he was absolutely passionate about this yeah. music. And um, he, would, he would say, you know, he, would, he went uh, down to the south during the summer break between, you know, spring and fall semesters. And uh, he'd search and record musicians on back porches, backyards, anywhere. John, to your, even, to your ears at that time... Like, what, what did this music sound like to you? Well, let's say it this way. I had, it was nothing like the music, well, it was sort of like the music that I had from uh, Bob Dylan's first LP. Mm-hmm. But actually, most, all of this, really, I had never heard before, heard before. And so he turned me on to Mance Litzkin and uh, Lightning Hopkins and um, I don't remember whoever else, but yeah. uh, it was just, well, I guess what was so exciting about it was, like I say, his passion, his just obvious passion for this music. And um, that changed also my perspective on, on Chris as a teacher. That, um, mm-hmm. like, I didn't like his German really... teaching until I saw the music. And now he turns out. Yeah. Um, John, what a great story. I love um, sometimes with legends like a Chris Strockwitz, it's kind of easy to forget they were. He was just a guy, uh, you know, uh, 60 years ago now, starting to figure out, like, is this going to happen? It's not like our Hooli Records was inevitable. He had to make this thing come into being. Yeah, there was never even a plan. It just sort of happened to him. Uh, Ralph Gleason, the great chronicle jazz and rock critic, uh, of course, knew Chris really well. And he, he always told Chris, you don't have a record company. You have a hobby. <laughs> There's some truth to that. Uh, Chris's passion was astonishing. Uh, he never lost his bliss. He never moved off his original point of view, which was he loved the music so much he just had to make it. He never did anything to make an extra nickel or sell an extra record. It was all about making records that he wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. And I was there one night in the 80s at his house up on uh, Berkeley Hills where Ry Cooter came by wanting to hear Tex-Mex uh, music because he knew very little about it. And Chris sat there that night and played Rye 78s, and he was shouting yee-haw along with these records <laughs> so much that he was, tears were rolling down his cheek. And I think about that. You know, Rye Cooter probably is responsible more than any other single musician for introducing this Tex-Mex music into uh-huh. the mainstream of American pop music. Yeah. And and the source of his infection or, or was Chris Strockwitz's living room. Yeah. Let's hear um let's hear one of those. This is uh, Los Pinguinos del Norte and the song is El Desperado. Mm-hmm. 
That was Los Pinguinos del Norte. Um, this was kind of the introduction of this this recording session with Los Pinguinos was kind of the introduction that Chris had to recording Conjunto and these other kind of regional Mexican forms, yeah? That was his first Norteño record. Yeah. Uh, he was the lone uh, ranger on that music. I mean, when Chris started researching and, and recording the Tex-Mex stuff, Nobody's so not an Anglo uh, thing. No, yeah. well, and Chris yeah. didn't speak Spanish, so I mean, it was all completely nuts. But he just loved this music, <laughs> and the the people that made those records along the border cared nothing for it. They had no sense of its history. They had no sense of its heritage. They had no sense of its cultural roots. They were just, you know, uh, like the R and B record companies of the right, 50s. right, making like, a buck on the real yeah. musicians. Yeah, and I don't think the musicians had any sense of their own place. And Chris was diligent in organizing the research and in sussing out the history and finding the old guys and re-recording them in buying entire record companies. We're talking with Joel Selvin, San Francisco-based music journalist, about Arhuli Records. Got a new book out called Arhuli Records Down Home Music. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, talking with Joel Selvin about his new book, Our Hooli Records Down Home Music, The Stories and Photographs of Chris Strockwitz, which co-authored with Chris Strockwitz, who died earlier this year. Taking some of your calls, too, about you know things that you discovered through Our Hooli Records or this kind of music that speaks to you, give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. 6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. You know, the way that I first encountered Arhuli was actually through an album that Chris made that's called Oakland Blues, which kind of is a compilation of trying to capture that kind of 7th Street blues sound. Those, right, are, those are all Bob Geddens records. Yeah, yeah. Bob Geddens was a fascinating character. He was a black entrepreneur who started recording blues in Oakland in 1945. There were a lot of obstacles for a black entrepreneur in 1945, including getting your records pressed. So Geddens bought his own pressing plant. Hmm. He was fantastic. He discovered Lowell Folsom. He discovered Jimmy McCracklin. He worked with Oakland blues people like Johnny Fuller, uh, Jimmy Wilson, old Tin Pan Alley's a classic, Johnny Ace's Last Letter. Uh, but of course, Oakland was not like a you know central yeah. depot of things. So he was sort of off to the wayside. People didn't really think about him. And of course, Chris well, hooked up with him right away. As a matter of fact, 
Bob Geddens was the guy who turned him on to Big Joe Williams. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's right. And Bob was a, a, a very encouraging to Chris early on. And and Bob knew the down-home blues uh, and, and mm-hmm. the little Folsom records that he did uh, uh, in the 40s. They were all, uh, old-fashioned stump blues. And, and Chris put the, those out, too, uh, uh, released yeah. Bob's uh, little Folsom records. So that <laughs> Oakland blues yeah. record is, 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 is really something it's, special. It's very redolent of that early 50s blues, urban blues sound. Yeah. Let's, um, let's listen to uh, Jimmy Wilson, Frisco Bay. That's what we've got. My last letter Just got to say goodbye Read on down a little further It will tell you the reason why Just got to go this way It was uh, Jimmy Wilson's Frisco Bay, just kind of the music of the Bay Area era of the Great Migration. Totally fascinating um, album, Oakland Blues, that's from. It's worth noting that another thing that Chris did was reissue records that had been lost. He had a series called Blues Classics, which were Mm. bootlegs, frankly, taken from his 78 collection. But the Blues Classics label reintroduced the work of Memphis Minnie, of P.D. Wheatstraw, Kokomo Arnold, many, many people, including the early Sonny Boy Williamson records are on Blues Classics. Oh, interesting. So that's another thing that Chris did is he kept the the back literature fresh and, and, and reintroduced a lot of music. Well, and there's, you know, inspired a bunch of people. I mean, my favorite is like the Numero Group. You know, they go and they do mostly soul collections. Now they've expanded. They I mean, started out with a lot of soul collections doing that thing, going in and buying kind of defunct record labels, catalogs, and then reissuing uh, compilations and things from them. But that guy at the Numero Group's a real um, archaeologist. Yeah, yeah. Let's, um, let's bring in uh, uh, JJ in Berkeley. Welcome. Hi, um, I don't know Joel Delvin, but I knew Chris, and I learned so much from him, and I'm learning so much about what he's done that I didn't even know about just listening to this program. I mean, it's amazing. Um, I I knew Chris uh, basically a long time ago. I was in Texas. I hung out with Lightning, and, and I knew Mance and um, some of those other people down there in Third Ward. Wow. And, How'd you know him? Um, Were you a musician also? Uh, well, I played guitar. I'm from, I'm from L.A., and um, I played guitar, and I first heard uh, heard Lightning, um, you know, on the radio, and I, I didn't like the music at all, but there was something about it that just, like, you know, mesmerized me, and I had to go find out what was going on, just like a lot of white guys went down there looking for him. And I just happened to be a woman, and I was a black woman, but <laughs> kind of assimilated and all that. And I went down there with my guitar, and I said, okay, hey, I want to hang with you. And he, like, and he said, all right, all right, baby. You know? And so I hung out in the, in, the, in the juke joints, and I went, I knew I met Antoinette, and I went down to, uh, she took me down to Opelousas to hear uh, Clifton Chenier, because, you know, and Cleveland, and I got to see that Zadico, and I call it Zadico, not Zadico, because people down there, they called it Zadico. And they never spelled it with an X, but, you know, <laughs> c'est la vie. 
But um, uh, it was amazing to wow. go down there to Louisiana in, in this little, you know, I went to Antoinette's home and they served me a, they served me some um, casserole and I said, what is it? It's Robin Birds. It was Robin. Robin. Was, oh. <laughs> yes, it was baked Robins. Well, you know, baked in a pie. Wow. And uh, people did eat them. It was amazing, but it was, it was just incredible. And Nance was just, he was, you know, was just so unprepossessing. He, he was, was the sweetest guy, guy, wasn't he? Really? Just he was just yeah, the sweetest. He was, oh. he was really sweet. JJ he was well, really a nice guy. Yeah, thank so, you so anyway, much. Yeah. What a great story. Beautiful to hear. But I love these I mean, the way that kind of bringing out some of the history then brings out all these other pieces of history that get kind of magnetized by people kind of remembering, you know. And I, I was thinking about that. Um thanks again for that call, JJ. I was thinking about that because the, the photos here are kind of like that, right? Like the music created this institution, but then these photos now get to be attached to it. They kind of add an entire other dimension to this work. Well, when you start to bring up the relationship between music and memory, we're headed off into Jungian territory because <laughs> those things are very, very much tangled up together. Yeah. But Chris's photographs are particularly wonderful. And he didn't think of himself as a photographer anymore than he thought of himself as a record producer, but he was wrong about that, too. He knew how to operate the camera. He picked up his first Leica in 52 when he was in the Army, yeah. and he knew how to take pictures. So by the time he starts going around looking at music, and he had a camera with him all the time, yeah. he was photographing things the way they needed to be photographed. He knew what needed to be in the frame. He knew how to photograph musicians. He knew what the scene required. Hmm. And so, like I said earlier, I mean, these photos, you can hear the music in them. Yeah. And some of them are so amazing. But Chris just saw this as a utilitarian thing for album covers and, and publicity photos. And I'll give you an example. He took probably the single most famous blues photo ever of Sonny Boy Williamson with his guitar player and drummer, playing out behind the radio station in Helena, Arkansas, where Sonny Boyd did a, a radio show. And until this book, that photo had never been seen in its full frame. It had always been cropped down to just the musicians, which are in the left-hand side of the frame. With the full frame, there's this abandoned field that's just growing, overgrown. There's this ramshackle house in the background. The whole scene creates this immense atmosphere. It's, it's amazing photograph, but Chris never saw any reason to include the other half of it. It's oh, amazing. Um, let's talk. Uh, well, first, let's play a little bit of what I think would be called, what you call Rose Maddox and the Maddox Brothers, hillbilly music? You think that's the best description? I, th I think Rose would. <laughs> yeah, right. So let's play, uh, let's play uh, some Rose Maddox here. When I was single, I used to be afraid no one would ever wed me and I'd die sour old baby. Now I am married and I set me down to weep. Cause my husband Charles the backer and he snores in his sleep. Oh Lord, I wish I was a single girl again. Lord, I wish I was a single girl again. Oh man, what a great song. That's uh, Rose Maddox. So, uh, performed with her brothers, the, the Maddox brothers. 
Um, if you want to hear the full story about the Maddoxes, we're going to talk a little bit about them now. But listen to the Kitchen Sisters uh, podcast, The Passion of Chris Strockwitz, where they really go in depth on it. It's amazing. I, um, tell me a little bit about the, the Maddox family. Well, Chris took me to see Rose Maddox. I've got to be in the 70s, maybe, uh, at a place in Richmond called the It Club. Hmm. Oh, just a dump. But there's Rose Maddox, this this country music legend. Uh, She was one of Chris's first musical loves. Uh, The Maddox Brothers and Sister Rose, Philadelphia Lawyer, was a hit version of Woody Guthrie's song. And that was something that Chris heard on those late night radio shows in the in the early fifties when he first came to the country, and and he was smitten. It's so interesting because you know, um, I was learning about the their story, and I think it's a, a part of kind of California history that can be forgotten or at least taken out of context. Which was there were a bunch of white people who also migrated uh, to to California. And were basically migrant farm workers. That's what the Maddox family was doing, right? Before they got into music, they were they were picking cotton in the fields, uh, you know, near Bakersfield. No, they got a, a radio show, and 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 that was all they needed. Yeah, ask Merle Haggard about the um, Maddox brothers and sister Rose. He was growing up in Bakersfield with his ear glued to the radio, listening to the uh, Maddox brothers. Yeah, I mean, a question that I had, you know, given given that Chris was from outside the United States, given that he recorded. You know, black artists, white artists, Mexican artists, Cajun artists, all these different folks. How do you think he read Race in America? Oh, he understood Race in America. He understood it vividly. He experienced it. Uh, He did, as you say, have this outsider status, which I think helped him a lot down Mm -hmm. in the South in the early days. I mean, they'd see this gawky, goofy German guy (laughs) sort of shuffling his weight from one foot to the other and smiling at the music. And they knew he wasn't part of the problem. That's so, yeah, that's really interesting. Let's um, bring in uh, Hal in Berkeley. Welcome, Hal. Oh, hi. Uh, I was just curious because when I discovered Chris Strockwitz, I think it was around 1980 or so, I can't remember whether I discovered him or Les Blank and his movies first, and the two of them are sort of always interconnected in, the, in my memory and my, my connection to the music. And I wondered if you had anything to say about Chris's connection to Les Blank. Sure. Well, Chris saw Les's movie on uh, Lightning Hopkins and had not met Les at that point. Uh, that, he sought Les out, and Les shot the movie on Mance Lipscomb with some of Chris's help. But they didn't really work together until Chris was able to convince Les to do the Texas Mexican music, Chulas Fronteras, which I think's like um, 80, 81, right around in there. Uh, and that is the beginning of their relationship. And you know, Les moved his film company into Chris's uh, uh, warehouse, and, and they were pals for the rest of Les's life and, 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 uh, and collaborators. Let's uh, hear a little bit more of that Tex-Mex music. Uh, I believe Bless. we've got another uh, Flaco Jimenez. Let's listen. Ya no quiero que me beses ni besarte 
mirarte ni siquiera oír tu voz Porque supe que tenías otro amante Y el Laredo ya tenías otros dos Te gusta mucho el baile Got some more Flaco Jimenez there for you Recorded uh, and put out on our Juli uh, records I want to get to uh, one last call here Let's get to uh, Bob in Richmond Welcome Hello, thank you very much. Um, well, I'm a longtime investor, and uh, our Julio used to say I was a CD investor in, in the company. <laughs> and I came out in 1973 in my VW microbus across the Great Divide, and I ran into our Huli Records probably about 1975 or so, and never left. Uh, Chris is a giant. I mean, like me, I'd never heard much of this music at all. When I met Nance. Uh, that's a blank through Mance Liskin's movie. I was, I was sold. And uh, I just wanted to be one more person saying that Chris not only changed my life, I think he changed the entire sound and face of uh, music. Yeah. Uh, music is like, you know, it's like, see, if, if somebody hears something they love, like Lightning Hopkins or Mance or Chula, then you go and you find out what it's about and you go and you find it, like, you know, for the rest of your life, I guess, I hope. Yeah. yeah. And that's because he's, you know, Johnny Appleseed of music to me. Yeah, um, Bob. So anyway, that was my purpose. No, and and Bob, th- thank you so much for uh, for calling because you actually, you know, we haven't gotten to the way that this music ended up infusing itself into the most popular music in the in the country, right? I mean, in a, and in the world, yeah. in the world, yeah. yeah. So, what was that kind of connection point between, you know, the the blues and these other uh, forms of music and making their way into like you know big rock and roll and pop music? Well, we don't have enough time left for that. <laughs> but uh, let me let me say this. I'm I'm just sitting here uh, listening to uh, the, the callers, yeah. and I'm it's bittersweet. I, I, Chris should be here. I wish Chris could hear this. Mm-hmm. This is the sort of stuff that he wanted to hear mm. from this book. He wanted to collect this approbation, and I mean he was 91, and but I, it, I swear it never occurred to me that he wasn't going to yeah. be here for these interviews. Yeah. I, I should be in the green room. You should be talking to Chris. Did you? Uh, did you? Did he get to see this book before? He, he saw the pages. Yeah. He did not see the book, but he did see the pages, and I would say he was mm, coming around to accepting it. And uh, you know, <laughs> if he'd seen the book, he would have been all the way there. But he was still—he's very fussy, and he—he—he he, he ran everything himself, one hundred and ten percent. So giving up. This project to me and a publisher was a very difficult thing for him. Oh. And he was worried about things like registration and could they really print photos across two pages? And the book arrived and I just was assumed with grief. I was like, look, Chris, they can print it across two pages. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. You know, uh, a listener tweets, Chris Strockwitz loved music as much or more than anyone on the planet. He discovered and recorded some of the greatest musical artists of all time, different genres, different eras but they all had something in common they had soul and so did chris i miss that guy we have been talking with joel selvin san francisco-based music journalist and author about his latest book our huli records down home music the stories and photographs of chris strockwitz co-authored with the man himself chris strockwitz thank you so much for joining us this morning let's not forget chronicle books Chronicle Books. That's right. Another institution. That's right. <laughs> uh, the 9 o'clock hour of Forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Dan Zoll. Our interns are Jericho Reininger and Emiko Oda. 
Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer. Francesca Fenzi is our digital community producer. Judy Campbell is lead producer. Danny Bringer is our engineer hero today. Thank you so much, Danny. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. If you want to check out a couple of things, the photos are on the Instagram. We also made a Spotify playlist. You can go on Spotify, search KQD Forum, find our account there, and we have a playlist of a bunch of the music that we played here this morning. Thank you so much again, Joel. Great to be here. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another Hour Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.